0: Welcome you to week three now of our series uh, called "The Church," where uh, every week, kind of from a different angle, uh, we're, we're getting at this question that I think is more important than ever, uh, at least in my experience as a pastor, specifically the last two years. The question is, what does it mean to be a Christian and a part of this thing called the church? And uh, to answer that question, we're spending the rest of the summer in uh, just the first four chapters of Ephesians because I really think that particular section of Scripture gets at that question probably more, um, almost more surgically than any other place in Scripture. It's incredibly convicting, and so we are, we are continuing our march uh, this morning. I'm going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, extremely famous passage of Scripture. Let me read that, um, and we'll get into it. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the Spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, Because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I don't know how your 401k is doing, but it's not doing better than that. Verse 8, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his creation created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is God's word. If you're going to get at the, the, the question that we're getting at in this series, what does it mean to be a Christian and a part of this thing called the church, you have to answer the question, what does it really mean to be saved? And there is probably no better passage in Scripture uh, to answer that question and the one we're looking at today, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. What's really convenient about this passage is it um, very obviously falls in, into three kind of sections. Uh, verses 1 to 3 talks about the life that we need to be saved from. Verses 8 to 10, the life that we can be saved to. Verses 4 to 7, what God does to bring us from this place to that place. So that's going to kind of serve as a guide for what we talk about this morning. So what I want to begin with is uh, the life that we're saved from. Obviously, you talk about being saved, it's not going to mean anything to you unless you understand what you're being saved from. And so in the first verses of this passage, 1-3, to Paul explains why anybody needs to be saved to begin with. Let me read it. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the Spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshy desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So the first thing, um, it really, it's, it's, it's the you know, first several words of this passage that Paul says about us outside of Jesus is that we are dead. And so immediately what you're already kind of coming face to face with, if you just think through the implications of that statement, you're seeing one of the things that really does make the Christian message so unique, uh, when, specifically when compared to, to the teachings of other major belief systems, for instance... If you were to take Buddhism and kind of boil it down to its core, you'd be left with something called the eightfold path. You may or may not have heard of. If you were to take Islam and boil it down to its core, you would find something known as the five pillars. Take Judaism, boil it down to its core, you're left with the 10 commandments. But you take Christianity and you boil it down and what's really interesting is that the at the foundation and the kind of the core of Christianity, you will not find a philosophy You will not find advice. You will not find a teaching or a set of instructions. You'll find instead a person named Jesus. And this person claimed to do something for you that no other founder of any other major belief system has ever dared claim to do, which is to secure your salvation for you and now offer it to you as a free gift. That's the part of Christianity that we love. The implied statement there, however, the whole reason why Jesus needs to secure our salvation for us is because, as Paul's explaining in these opening verses, the Bible teaches that outside of Jesus, mankind is not sick. We are not confused. We are not incomplete. Outside of Jesus, mankind is dead. The Greek word is nekros. Think necromancer. It literally means to be uh, destitute of force or power. So what Paul is basically saying here is it would be pointless if Christianity most foundationally offered you an eightfold path, five pillars, ten commandments, whatever it is, because there's nothing you and I can do to change our state. Now, I could move on from this idea and get to the good news, but for whatever reason, when I was putting this teaching together, what really grabbed me this time is that Paul doesn't just tell us that we're dead outside of Jesus. He, he describes uh, I think in a, in a pretty helpful amount of detail, the symptoms of what a spiritually dead life is. And if you, if you just kind of dig into the Greek words that he uses here, what he's saying in verses 1 to 3, that spiritual death, being dead in our sins, uh, which is the state of all mankind apart from something radical happening to us, we're going to get to that in a minute, that life, at its essence, is its, um, it's slavery. It's about being enslaved to three primary forces that are mentioned in these opening three verses. The first is what my version calls the ways of this world. The second is what Paul calls the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens. That's the devil, the devil. Uh, and the third is our own flesh and thoughts. So, if you've ever heard that phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil, this is one of the passages in Scripture that we get that, that little phrase from, and what Paul is saying here is that to be spiritually dead is to be dominated by and enslaved by those three forces. So, I'm going to, to take some time on the front end here walking through what that means, but, but let me just, before I get into it, a little caveat here. Um, I'm aware that most of the people listening to this are, you know, you've, you've already made the decision to give your life to Jesus, but... Uh, two reasons I think it's really important to, to, to talk about what Paul's talking about here is because, number one, I believe that on any given Sunday morning, there are more people than any of us that would realize that are in the house listening to this who have not given their life to Jesus. And the, the reason that I, I believe that, like I do, is because I was born and raised around godly men and women my entire life, uh, but it didn't come home for me until I was 19. So I, I, I kind of preach under the conviction that there's a lot of people on a Sunday morning who might agree with this, but it hasn't come home for you yet, which is why it's worth it to talk about this stuff. But secondly, for those of us who have given you know, your life to Jesus, you are what the Bible would say is spiritually alive. Talking about this life outside of Jesus is, is equally as valuable for us because it gives us the opportunity to kind of um, take a self-inventory and figure out whether or not we're living in line with what the Bible says is already true of us. So all of that to say, Paul says that spiritual death is about being enslaved to three primary forces. Let's talk about them. The first one is the ways of the world. Uh, That's basically another way of talking about culture. When you are spiritually dead, uh, you really don't have an option except to become a product of the culture that you live in. G.K. Chesterton, name you may have heard before, famous theologian, I love this quote. He said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. It's basically what Paul is saying here, that on autopilot, uh, apart from a spiritual awakening taking place in your and my heart, uh, your culture will determine what you value, it will determine what you see as right or wrong, how you determine right and wrong, how you view yourself, how you view others, how you view people that you disagree with, what the point of life is, what is necessary in order to be happy and live a fulfilling life, your culture is going to lay that on top of you and impose that on you and and sort of mold you in ways that, that you're largely unaware of and maybe maybe powerless of. And, and, you know, as much as we want to think, especially in the modern West, I want to think this. I think we all want to think this. We all want to think that, no, no, I've arrived at my conclusions and convictions and beliefs through my own intellect and reasoning. It's just not true. Uh, not true at all. And it's a very easy thing to prove. Let me just, as a thought experiment, if you were born in the year 1250 on the side of a mountain in Mongolia, uh, that's a radically different culture. That's a different continent. Uh, that's a that's a different century. You'd have a different family. You'd have you know far different life experiences. Uh, then what would happen is you would have a radically different outlook on life than the outlook that you have right now, which was largely imposed on you because of the culture that you were born in. And, and, and the first sign that you are spiritually dead, according to Paul, is that you're you're either unaware of that, and well, I, actually, I would say you are unaware of that and unable to resist that. If you want a great example of this, you may have heard me talk about this before. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Thomas Jefferson version of the Bible. Got a few in the house. So Thomas Jefferson famously took a penknife through the Bible, and he just cut out everything that he thought didn't belong in there, which that is an astounding amount of what I'll refer to as confidence because I feel like being polite today. But every time he came across something that he was sure God didn't really say that, God wouldn't really do that, God didn't really mean that, he just cut that out of the Bible. What he was left with is the old... T.J.V., I guess you could call it the Thomas Jefferson version of the Bible, and uh, I have no idea whether Thomas Jefferson was a Christian. I have no desire to debate that with anybody. Please don't talk to me about that. But what that exercise indicates, that is a picture-perfect kind of model for what Paul's talking about here, for what it means to be um, walking according to the ways and in really enslaved by the ways of the world because in his mind, he'd been so indoctrinated by, he'd been so informed by, he'd been so molded, uh, by his culture, that that became his ultimate source of authority in life. Even if the Bible said something different, it didn't matter. What culture said reigned in his life. That, according to Paul, is the first sign of spiritual death. The, the second symptom that he talks about, the, the, I guess the second, if you want to call it, force that we're enslaved by um, is what Paul refers to as the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, which is Paul's way of referring to the devil, Uh, So here's a grabby question on a Sunday morning. What does it mean to be influenced by, dominated by, enslaved by the devil? Um, There's a lot of uh, different answers to that question that we could pull from Scripture that obviously would all be correct. But I think the easiest way to understand what it is to be under the influence of Satan is just go to the third chapter of the Bible because that's where, his to me, his work is most clearly put on display, you know, when Satan tempted Eve. Uh, and if you, if you get into that, um, that story there, what you'll find is a, a great understanding of what it means to be influenced by the devil because the only nice thing that can be said about him is his tactics don't change. What, what he did then is what he still does now. And, and really, all of the devil's influence, Satan's influence, you know, you watch a movie like The Exorcist, it usually doesn't involve somebody turning green and crawling on the ceilings, although if you're doing that on Monday evening, I would be concerned, maybe reach out to your brother or sister in Christ, but according to the Bible, the way that Satan's influence normally manifests itself in our lives is very simply by causing us to question the character of God, period. That's what Satan does, that's what he's always done. That's, that's the, uh, the first assault in Scripture is an assault on the character of God. You know, when Satan asks that old quote, did God really say? You know, did God really mean? And then, you know, what he does is he starts to make life with God look narrow and constricting. He makes life outside of God look so satisfying and liberating. And it's it's all driven by this idea that God's holding out on you and he's holding out on me. And real fulfillment and real happiness and the life that will really give us what we're looking for is found outside of rather than inside of God's will for our lives. When we find ourselves... Uh, you know, thinking that, believing that, being led by that, what Paul would say is in those moments, we are uh, under the influence of the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, which is the second symptom of spiritual death. The third and the last one here is, is in verse 3, where Paul says, "'We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires.'" Carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Now, what captures my attention about the way that Paul describes this aspect of spiritual death here, you may have noticed this. He talks about carrying out the inclinations of your own flesh and thoughts. You think about the words he's using there. To carry out someone else's inclinations, that's the language of slavery, that's the language of servitude. But what's ironic is, is, is what Paul is saying here is that in this case, the master that you're serving is actually your own flesh. And so the picture that Paul's painting for us in, in, in verse 3 is the picture of someone who, I want to be careful how I say this, and I'm going to take my time really trying to explain what I mean and don't mean. The picture Paul's painting here is that uh, it, it's, it's of someone who in everything that they do they're doing everything that they do in order to get their own needs met. It's this person that's, that's driven by this insatiable hunger and everything that they do. Let me, let me just pause here. If I was not a Christian, and this was my first Sunday, and, you know, somebody invited me to church or coerced me into church or whatever brought me, you, know, you to this message if this was kind of how I was hitting the ground running, I think I would be incredibly offended by this because this idea that, you know, outside of Jesus, everyone in the world is spiritually dead, that's not the kind of thing that you would say if you're interested in, you know, Uh, how to win friends and influence people kind of approach because what it sounds like you're saying when you talk spiritually dead, it sounds like what you're saying is that unless you're a Christian, you're this horrible person that only ever does bad things. I wanna be crystal clear here, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying that outside of Jesus, you're incapable of doing anything good. What he's saying is that outside of Jesus, no matter what you do, even the good things that you do, you are doing to get your own needs met and you really don't even have an option but to go through life that way. Now, the the, the best story that I've heard to illustrate this concept is a story that I got from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, I've shared it with you before, but it's been, I think, like six years or something. It's called The King, the Carrot, and the Horse. I don't know if you've ever heard it before. It goes like this. Once upon a time, it's not a true story. Once upon a time, there was a farmer uh, who loved to grow carrots. And uh, he was in his garden one morning, and he discovered the most beautiful carrot he'd ever laid eyes on. And he knew in that moment, I'm never going to see a carrot like this again. This farmer really loved his king, and so he threw this carrot in a wheelbarrow. He brought it into the presence of the king. He dumped it out at his feet, and he says, King, uh, my family's been farming for generations. It's all I do. I love to do it, and I'll tell you that all my life I've never seen a carrot like this. I don't think I ever will again. Again, and I just wanted to give it to you because I think you're an amazing king. You know, I wouldn't be able to do what I love to do apart from your leadership and your protection. And I'm just really thankful to live in a kingdom with a king like you, you know, at the helm. So I don't even know if you like carrots, but, but here you go. And so he turned on his heel to leave. That was the end of it. But just before he stepped out of the king's presence that day, the king stopped him, moved by this farmer's generosity. And he says, uh, it is so obvious that you have a passion and you have a gifting uh, for, you know, bringing forth vegetables and fruit, and in this case, carrots from the earth. And uh, I actually know your farm, and I own a plot of land right next to it that's about twice the size of it. And uh, I just want to give you the opportunity to do more of what you were obviously put on this earth to do, so that land is yours free of charge. You can imagine the farmer could have floated out of the king's presence that day. He came in there just to get rid of a carrot. He left, and his, his plot of land was now three times the size. It's a pretty good day. So in the king's court that day, there was a nobleman who saw this exchange take place, and he thought to himself, okay, if that's how the king rewards somebody who gives him a vegetable... Uh, then I wonder what the king would do for somebody who gives him something that's actually valuable. So the next day, the nobleman marches into the king's presence. Behind him, he has this beautiful, black, purebred stallion, and with a whole lot of pomp and circumstance, he bows really low before the king, and he says, O king, my family has bred horses for generations, and I'll tell you, this stallion behind me is the closest to a genetically perfect stallion I've ever seen or you'll ever see, and I wanted to give it to you. He bows real low. And the king, with everybody watching him, says, thanks. <laughs> and that's all the king says. So the nobleman starts to kind of upright himself. He looks a little confused. He looks a little Uh, you know out of place he starts to get angry and kind of indignant he spins on his heel to leave and the king stops him just like he stopped the farmer the day before just before he walked out of the presence of the king he said good sir you are obviously confused about how this worked out for you today so I'll make it real clear to you yesterday when that farmer walked in here he was giving me the carrot today when you walked in here you were giving yourself that horse you know, whatever the ancient version of a mic drop was, I assume the king did after that. Point is, what Paul is saying here is that on autopilot, the human heart, until something outside of it regenerates it and transforms it, the human heart has no choice but to go through life like that. It's been this way since Genesis chapter 3. But the the, the Bible teaches that really the the sin underneath every other sin that we commit, if you want to say the original sin that's led to every other sin in, in my life, in your life, in everyone's life, is the sin of putting ourselves at the center of our lives, which is really what the essence of self-centeredness is. Uh, Really, that's what's caused all of the deterioration that we experience in humanity. It's the self-centeredness of the human heart. Nobody gets to look down on anybody else for it because we're all guilty of it. If we don't recognize that, then we simply don't know ourselves. Uh, When you talk about self-centeredness, You know, one of the obvious ways that, uh, I would say, the obvious way that self-centeredness manifests itself is an obviously selfish behavior that everybody would look at and say, yeah, that's immoral. You know, think the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. That's the obviously immoral behavior that, you know, self-centeredness manifests itself as. But one of the really surprising things about the entire Bible and Jesus specifically Is When you you really get into how the Bible talks about human nature, uh, what you'll find is that the far more common way that the self-centeredness of the human heart manifests itself is not in bad behavior, but in good behavior. It's not in immorality, but in morality. It's in a deeply religious approach to life where you're doing everything you can to keep all the rules and live this good life and do a whole bunch of good deeds. Underneath that, the Bible says over and over and over again, most of the time is a really deep self-centeredness. That that's why so often in our lives, if we're honest, when we at great personal cost to ourselves decide to do what God calls us to do in this book, only to find that, wait a minute, my life doesn't get any easier when I do that and it hasn't worked out the way that I want to, we are, are the default of the human heart is to get angry at God with an approach that says, wait a minute, you're not holding up your end of the deal. You know, It's the same thing when, when we go out of our way to serve somebody, to sacrifice for somebody, to lay ourselves down for somebody... But then we don't feel appreciated by that person or, 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 or other people. You know, this root of bitterness and ugliness and resentment begins to grow and rear its ugly head. And the reason for that is because as much as we don't want to admit it because we have to come to terms with how shallow we are, the truth is that a huge part of us does what we do, not for God's sake, not for others' sake, not for goodness' sake, but for our own sake. This is something that Jesus would not let people off the hook about during his own ministry. Well, I was putting this, this teaching together thinking about this specific idea uh, it, it brought to mind this one episode in Matthew's Gospel account, chapter 21, where Jesus is in the temple complex. He's speaking to the chief priests and the elders, and he te- uh, these people, have a, they, they lived a ki- with a kind of discipline and a kind of religious devoutness and uprightness that would just put the best of us to shame. Jesus told the chief priests and the elders that tax collectors and prostitutes were entering the kingdom of God ahead of them. I got to believe that at least one of the disciples was thinking, okay, we're going to start going over Jesus' speeches before they go live moving forward. You know, I just know you could hear a pin drop in the temple after that. It makes sense, you know, you begin to understand why the religious leaders saw Jesus as such a threat to the point that they wanted to end his life. But, of course, the reason Jesus spoke that way to them is because he could see to the bottom of the human heart. And in seeing to the bottom, Jesus knew and pointed out that all the good stuff they were doing, they weren't doing uh, for God. They weren't doing for others. They were doing in order to get their own needs met. They were practicing all their religiosity and their good deeds and, and you know, whatever it is to, to get God to save them or to get God to give them a good life or to get other people to respect them or, you know, to, to give them the opportunity to build this robust self-image so now I can look down on other people who don't work as hard as me and feel better about myself. And so what that means is that even their, even their good deeds, which might have been good, I mean, Pharisees did a lot of good things. They were generous. They were hardworking. They did serve. But all that really was at its core was self-centeredness with a religious mask on. And what Paul is saying here is that if you don't think you fall into that category, you don't know yourself. You just don't know yourself. What, what Paul is saying is that, and he, I mean, he's the expert on this if you know about his life prior to Jesus, that the human heart has no, it has no option but to go through life like that until something changes it. And so that's really the essence of, spirit, of, of spiritual deadness, it's, it's enslavement to the ways of this world, to the ruler of this world, and to our own flesh and thoughts. Uh, now, you zoom out from that, and, and I think it's safe to say, you know, I, I'm, for whatever reason I felt compelled to compare Christianity to other belief systems here um, a lot in this teaching, You zoom out from that and it's really clear that that Christianity, at least at first, it's offering you a far more pessimistic view of mankind than maybe any other belief system does. I think that's safe to say. Because not only is Paul saying that we're enslaved to these things, remember the the word that he uses when he says you're dead is there's nothing you can do about it. There's, There's no set of instructions you can follow. There's no seven habits of spiritually awakened people you can employ in your life. There's just nothing you can do. And so what Paul says, building off of this in verses 4 to 7, is what God did that only God could do to make a new way of life for us available. So let me read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now if, uh, if you notice, there are three things Paul tells us God does for us in this passage. Three specific things. He makes us alive, He raises us up, and he seats us in the heavens with Jesus. Now, I was reading a a commentary on this passage. Commentators have pointed out that what's really fascinating about those three verbs is those three verbs refer uh, to the the, um, historical events in Jesus' life that took place after the crucifixion that we refer to as the resurrection, the ascension, and something you may or may not have heard before called the session. Right after Jesus died on the cross, God God made him alive. That's the resurrection. Then Jesus ascended back into heaven, Acts chapter one. That's the ascension. But in ascending back into heaven, Jesus isn't just floating around playing a harp. Scripture tells us over and over and over again, in in most of the New Testament letters, that Jesus in heaven is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the session. The reason that that's so important, see, ancient people understood the significance of that, that Jesus is not just in heaven generally, he's at the right hand of the throne of God, because in ancient times, and, and you would have immediately known this if you know you were in the Roman Empire, the, the the seat to the right hand of the throne was the seat of the absolute highest honor. That was reserved. The only way that you could possibly occupy that seat is if, if the king uh, was so confident in your character, he was so confident in your competency, in your ability, in your giftedness uh, that he could sit you in that seat. Because to sit at the right hand of the king is to run the entire kingdom on behalf of that king. Uh, this was a seat that was normally only reserved for a conquering hero like David or someone who, who uh, almost a, a divine distillation of wisdom earned the respect of the king like Joseph you know, in, in, uh, in um, the book of Genesis. And Scripture tells us that's what happened to Jesus, that in completing the task that he came down here to do, in, in conquering not only sin but death itself and earning our salvation for us, Jesus has ascended back into heaven as a conquering hero, and he's taken his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God. That's orthodox doctrine that Christians have held to for 2,000 years. But What's amazing about this passage is, is, is really two things fundamentally. First and foremost, it's that Paul is saying that God did all that, not just for Jesus, but for you. He's saying God made you alive. God raised you up and God seated you in the heavens with Jesus. That's the first thing that's amazing about it. The second thing that's amazing about it is that Paul is speaking of all of this in the past tense. What that means, what that means, and I did this last week. Please try to hear this like the Ephesians would have heard this. Because, yeah, they were believers, but they didn't have Bible studies. There was no the Bible when Paul wrote this letter. So they, they were saved, absolutely, but they didn't really understand what had happened. To I mean, they weren't theologians. They couldn't have been. They, there was no doctrine to study. Imagine what it would have been like when, when they're hearing what they're reading right now because what Paul is saying is the very moment you give your life to Jesus, not when your life reflects what Jesus has done for you. Not when you really start to clean up, not when you're a couple of steps down the road of your sanctification process. Paul says the very moment you give your life to Jesus, in that very moment, God has already done all of this for you. He's already raised you. You've already ascended. He's already seated you along with Jesus in the heavens. Now, obviously, when Paul says that, he's not speaking Literally, because last I checked, I still lived in Severn, and as much as I love Severn, one of the hopes I'm holding on to is that heaven's a little bit nicer than that. So if he's not speaking in a literal sense, what Paul must be speaking in is a legal sense that this can already be said to have taken place. And this is what we talked about on week one of this series. Christianity teaches that the moment you give your life to Jesus, not only are you pardoned for the life that you did live The moment you give your life to Jesus for the rest of your existence, you're now being rewarded for the life that you could have never lived, the life that only Jesus Christ could have lived on your behalf. That means that when God sees you, he loves you, He accepts you, he welcomes you, he rejoices over you, and he honors you just the way that he honors Jesus. I'm going to just say, I know you've heard me say that before, probably hundreds of times if you've been at this church for any length of time. I just want to point out, if any single one of us believed what I just said, what Paul is saying here, as deeply as we need to, it would completely change our lives forever. You would never worry about anything again if you believed as deeply as you need to, and I believed as deeply as I need to, what we just read here. If you struggle with social anxiety, if you want to never care about what anybody thinks or says about you for the rest of your life, if you want to never care about what you say or think about you for the rest of your life, if you want to stop worrying about your health, stop worrying about your retirement, stop worrying about your image, your reputation, the answer to all of that is right here. This right here would completely, and you could say that it did in Paul's life, it would completely change the way that you go through this life right here and now. So so let's put this together with what came before this. I said, kind of at the last move here, I said that until something happens to us that changes our hearts, we all go through life primarily desperately trying to get our own needs met. Everything we do, we're hungry for recognition. We're hungry for glory. We're hungry for validation. We're hungry for affirmation. Always feeling like we're snubbed. Always feeling like we're not being treated like we deserve. Always feeling all of that kind of stuff. Down on ourselves, or unbearably arrogant or kind of sliding between the two of them. What we're reading here is Paul is saying Christianity offers you a resource to break out of that life entirely because Christianity here is offering you something that no other belief system in the history of mankind has offered you, has offered anybody. What Christianity is offering here that you will not, fi- I promise you, you will not find anywhere else is an identity that instead of you having to achieve it, you need only receive it. Only in Christianity will you find that. You, you, I, I kind of began this idea at the beginning of our, t- of our uh, time together Compare every other major belief system to Christianity. I hope this doesn't sound judgmental or offensive, but I think it's really difficult to argue with. Every other belief system that mankind's ever come up with, there's a lot of different names for the gods. There's a lot of different specific codes of conduct and morality and ethics. There's a lot of different understandings of what salvation is. But every other belief system at its core has the same exact formula that drives it. The same exact formula. Here it is. Work leads to reward. Every single man-made belief system in history follows that pattern. It's like, you know, that that sign that famously hung outside of Auschwitz that says work leads to freedom. That's the message of every single belief system, every single man-made philosophy or whatever you want to call it in mankind's history. We can just walk through this and I can prove it. Buddhism, if you walk according to the eightfold path, then you'll achieve enlightenment and you can become one with the all soul of the world. Hinduism. If you navigate suffering well and live a moral life, you can escape the cycle of reincarnation and then enter into nirvana. Uh, Islam, if you navigate your life with the discipline to walk and govern yourself according to the five pillars, then Allah will save you and bless you and grant you salvation. Even the old school religions, I'm talking like old Norse religions, Vikings believed the only way that you could enter into Valhalla is if you died in battle. They were terrified of dying from old age or dying for disease or something that was considered dishonorable because the only way to get to Valhalla was to pay for it, you know, at the hands of your enemy with your own blood for the sake of your people. But my point is, we could do this with every belief system in history. It's all the same formula. Work leads to reward. What's happening here is Christianity comes out of nowhere, and, and, and what, what the essence of this passage is, Christianity is not just saying something different. It's doing something far more revolutionary than that. It's reversing the order. Only in Christianity do you get the verdict before the performance. Do you get the paycheck before the work week? Do you get the medal before you even run the race? And what that message is designed to do, what it did once upon a time 2,000 years ago, and what it still has the power to do today is to create a person that is completely off of the spectrum, when you, when you study what, what any of the New Testament epistles says a Christian really believes and a Christian really is, if you were to meet a Christian who's really living out the, 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 the truth of what Scripture says is true to them, a Christian would be completely freed from the need to prove him or herself. Completely free from anxiety, completely free from fear of death, com- completely free when their life doesn't go the way that they want to, when their plans don't succeed, they, they have a joy that, they, they, that it's just this ballast that keeps them throughout life. They would be profoundly interested in you. They're not serving you to try to get anything from you. There's no agenda. They're, they're, oper- they're the only group of people on earth that are operating out of having all of their needs already met. I'm not saying that every Christian's like this. What I'm saying is that it's only in Christianity do you have the resources to live like this. You won't find that anywhere else. Only in Christianity do you have the resources to live a brand new kind of life. And what that life is like is described for us at the end of this passage in verses 8 to 10. Let me read this for us. This will be the last text I read today. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. And then verse 10. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Of all the things that, that could be pulled out of just those three verses, all I want to do, we're getting ready to end today. I just want to look at what Paul says your identity becomes when you give your life to Jesus. It's found in verse 10. My version says that you are his creation. Other versions of the Bible translate that word uh, workmanship. Some even say masterpiece. Masterpiece. The Greek word that Paul uses here is the word "poema," from which we get our English word, poem. So what Paul is saying here is that when God enters into your life, when God enters into your life, you become a work of art designed by God himself. Now, I'll be candid with you, this was a really hard teaching for me to put together uh, I was uh, sweating bullets on this one. Up, you know, after the kids were in bed last night and at 5 a.m. this morning, and, you know, it looks like kind of like a college football playbook. I got all kinds of stuff, X's and O's moving stuff around. I don't know if that's because this, this passage is so familiar to me, uh, or if it's because there's so many different implications and applications of any one of these ideas. So this idea that, that you're a work of art designed by God, this is, it almost fried my, my brain to think about all of the different things that this means. If I could... And I don't know if this is just for me or not, but maybe it's for somebody that God brought to the house today. I just want to draw one implication of this idea that that in Jesus you're God's creation. Here's what this means, and then I'll explain why this is important. What Paul's saying here is that when when you come to understand all this passage is saying, when you come to understand, first off, your need for salvation, that you are spiritually dead outside of Jesus and there's nothing you can do about it, and then you come to understand what God has done for you, through no er, uh, merit or effort on your own that only God could do for you, what he's put on the table as available to you in Jesus, and you put your trust in Jesus, here's my idea, and then I'll walk through it. What Paul is saying is that from that moment for the rest of your existence, the defining force in your life is Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. That becomes the defining force in your life. Here's why that's so important. Right now I'm reading a book, by David Brooks, called The Second Mountain. In this book, it's not a book about marriage and relationships, but he has a few short chapters in there. And yesterday, when I was kind of beating my head against the wall, thinking, how on earth am I going to land the plane here? Uh, I came across something that that spoke to me. I highlighted it. I want to share it with you. He says, those of us who wish to pride ourselves on autonomy, on the self-made life, on freedom of choice, Are often humbled by the recognition that archaic patterns are playing through us. He says, Down in the unconscious layer of our minds, there are complexes and wounds that lead us to act in the same self destructive ways again and again. Your personality, I've never heard it phrased this way your personality is the hidden history of the places where love entered your life or was withdrawn from your life it is shaped by the ways your parents loved you the ways they did not love you all of us have certain attachment patterns lodged deep in our minds what that author's saying is something that i think as much as we don't want to admit it at least a part of us knows it to be true that to a large degree we are made defined by the things that happen to us and I'll tell you, in 10 years of just meeting with people one-on-one, I have seen how true that is. I've, I've, I, there's been so many times when I've met in a one-on-one setting with men that, you know, outside looking in, they, they look like they have everything together. They look like they are just the, the picture of somebody that, that has it figured out. And then we, you know, we sit for a couple of meetings and I, you know, dig around and ask some questions and, and all of a sudden, I, I've seen it happen so many times where an individual just erupts into tears as it dawns on them, maybe for the first time in their life, exactly how impacted, how affected, how defined they are by things that happened to them way back when. Maybe it was a really toxic relationship with a parent. Maybe it was the fact that there was no parent in the home at all. Maybe it was, you know, abuse or trauma. Maybe there was a family tragedy that they're realizing 10, 15, 20, 30 years later, we never healed from and we've been carrying around like a disease. My, my, my point is, Whether we want to admit this or not, we are made to a large degree by the things that happen to us. Now, that idea by itself is not happy, it's not friendly, and it doesn't provide us with a lot of hope. But what Paul is trying to get the Ephesians to see here and what God is trying to get us all to see here is that the moment that you give your life to Jesus, in that very moment, your life more than anything else is now defined by Jesus Christ. That means your life, the moment you give your life to Jesus is no longer defined by your childhood. It's no longer defined by the relationship you had or did not have with a parent. It's no longer defined by the things that were said to you, that were done to you, or the things that you said or you did that you feel have irreparably ruined your life. The moment you give your life to Jesus from that very moment, the same artist who designed galaxies is now redesigning your life. And pardon me for saying, he's really good at what he does. And so what Jesus Christ would say to all of us He's saying this to me. You know, maybe this is a word for somebody else this morning. What Jesus Christ would say to all of us through these verses is, listen, your whole life you've been allowing other people and other things to have a kind of defining power in your life. You've let so many other people and other things try to tell you who you are. You've let your parents tell you who you are. You've let your culture tell you who you are. You've let your own mind tell you who you are. Your successes and your failures tell you who you are. It's led to nothing but breakdown and misery. Jesus would say, why not take a break from that and let the God who loved you enough to die for you you, tell you who you are. And the promise of this passage is that when we do that, when we give Jesus Christ, when we surrender to Jesus and give Him defining power in our life. The promise is that we will find in him not only a life of profound freedom, but also a life of profound purpose. Because as we allow him to create and recreate our lives, we discover that we grow in the ability to walk in works that God has prepared beforehand for each one of us individually. That's the kind of purpose that money can't buy. And so what Jesus would say is that if you find in yourself a hunger for meaning and a hunger for purpose, then stop, stop looking to meaning and purpose itself, Jesus would say, start looking for me because only I can tell you who you really are. And once you and I know who we are, then and only then will we know what it is we're here to do. But the key is we have to go to Jesus and let him tell us who we are. Now, we've arrived at the end of our time together. The final question I want to ask is why why tell us all this? If you've been a part of this series for the last three weeks, you've seen Paul has dedicated a, an incredible amount of real estate. He's burned a lot of calories simply telling Christians what's already true about them. He hasn't, he, you, you'd be hard-pressed over the last three weeks to, to find a single command to believers. Why is Paul dedicating this much space to just telling us what's already true? To answer that question, I want to read you a, um, a story I came across four years ago. It's a true story. I don't know if you've ever heard this name before. It's a story of, of Lieutenant Hiru. Onada. He served in the Japanese Imperial Army's intelligence division and was sent to the Philippine island. Please pay attention to this date. He was sent to the Philippine island of Lubang in 1944. He had a top secret mission. It was to stay out of sight, to collect information on allied troop movements, and to launch guerrilla warfare. And one of the reasons that Lieutenant Onada is so famous is because he famously fought long after he needed to. So he was sent uh, to the Philippines as a part of an elite four-man squad. And they were initially tasked with blowing up an airfield and a pier. Uh, But as soon as they were there, the Philippines were completely overrun by American forces. And so to evade capture, he and his three men uh, had to basically disappear into the dense Philippine jungle uh, and basically live off the land. They did so. They survived this way for 18 months, living in the Philippines. Jungle. The story is about to get a lot crazier. One day in it was August 1945. They've been in the jungle for a year and a half. A plane flies over the jungle where he was. He and his men were suspected to be holding up, and they dropped hundreds of leaflets. And the leaflet said, "Listen, the war is over. There's nothing to do but come out and surrender." Lieutenant Onada saw one of these leaflets and he immediately dismissed this as Allied propaganda. He told his men they're just trying to get us to surrender our positions, but don't worry, we're not going to fall for it. So they stayed in the jungle for another five years. After five years, plus the initial one and a half years, after six and a half years of doing this, one of Lieutenant Onada's four-man cells said, I don't care what a prison camp is like. I choose Philippine jail over this jungle. And so he, he walked away. Four years after that, the second man in Onada's cell was killed. He was gunned down in a skirmish with local police. Um, Then in 1959, we started in 44. It's now 1959, Onada's status in Japan was changed from missing in action to killed in action because no one had seen or heard from him in 15 years. And then in 1972, the final member of Onada's four-man squad was killed, leaving Onada by himself. Still, he refused to surrender. So two years later, it's 1974, a Japanese college student named Norio Suzuki came across Lieutenant Onoda's hideout in the jungle, and he said, Lieutenant Onoda, this war's been over for decades. You need to come home. And Onoda said he would not surrender until he had orders from his superior officer. So this college student flew back to Japan, somehow managed to find Onoda's Commander, who's obviously retired now as an old man working in a bookstore, the Japanese government got a hold of this story. They flew this man uh, to go see Onada and he told him that World War II was over and had been over for close to 30 years. And so finally, on March 10th, 1975, Lieutenant Hiro Onada came out of the jungle wearing his immaculately kept military dress uniform and personally surrendered his sword to the Filipino president. The reason that I tell that story is because it highlights a really powerful truth that if you're not careful, you can waste your whole life fighting a war that you don't have to fight. This passage was written to make sure that you and I don't waste our lives doing that. And I can't think of anybody who would have been more passionate about that idea than the Apostle Paul. Because if you know anything about his life prior to Jesus, you knew that Paul worked, I mean, he outworked everybody. Paul was that man in the jungle. He, every day, by the sweat of his brow, he was, he was just about killing himself. Trying to trying to save himself, trying to justify himself, trying to earn his sense of self-worth, trying to deal with this kind of nagging feeling that he's not good enough, trying to make himself enough for God. But when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, all of that changed. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he realized for the first time in his life that he was fighting a war that had already been won, and there was nothing for him to do but surrender his life to Jesus. That realization profoundly changed who he was, and for the rest of his life, he dedicated himself to the hope that maybe one more person could come to that same life-changing realization that he did. That's the heart of this passage. So let me call the worship team up and we're gonna close with this. I have no idea where you're coming from this morning. Uh, I have no idea what God is doing in your life, what experiences he's given you, what he's walking you through right now, or what he would specifically say to you through Ephesians chapter two, one to 10. Maybe you're listening to this and you've never given your life to Jesus and you realize that you're like that man living in the jungle, fighting a war that Jesus died and rose again so you didn't have to fight anymore. Or, Or maybe, maybe you've already given your life to Jesus, but you know if you're being honest, you're not living out of the freedom of that, and you're still living like somebody who's trying to justify themselves. Wherever you're coming from, the application is the same. This passage is an invitation for you and I to see what God has done for us in Jesus. To see that the moment you give your life to Jesus, you're already made alive. That in Jesus, you're already raised up. To see that in Jesus, you're already seated in the heavens. To see that in Jesus, you are a work of art designed by the God who made galaxies. To see that in Jesus, your war is over and there's nothing for you to do. But put down your sword and walk in the peace and the freedom that that affords you. That's what Paul did. That's what salvation means. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for for grace. Thank you that Jesus has done everything that's necessary for us. Thank you that there's nothing left for us to earn, nothing left for us to achieve, that all we need to do is trust in the God-man who did everything that we could have never done ourselves. God, I'm sure that there's people here today in and outside of the faith that know they're still living like somebody, that that, uh, the weight of the world's on them. And... uh, And it's been breaking their back for a long time. And it's been robbing them of peace and and joy and, and all the things that you desire for us. God, I just pray you would open, as a community, you'd open our eyes to what you've done for us, what you've made available to us in Jesus. So that instead of going through life, trying to get our needs met, we would realize that each and every one of those needs has already been met in you. And we can finally begin to serve you and the people around us for your glory and our joy. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.